Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Good morning. Where in the word are you on this Wednesday, February the 3rd? Where in the word are you today? Lots and lots of conversations in the culture about identity, what people say about themselves, who they claim to be, whether or not that is fixed or static. So who is this Jesus about whom we make so much fuss? Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Uh, everyone on the street, if you were to ask them, you know, uh, who, who is Jesus of Nazareth or who is Jesus whom we celebrate at Christmas or who is Jesus who Christians claim rises from the dead at Easter? Who is this Jesus? Many, many people will have formed an opinion about him one way or another. But here's um, maybe the more essential question. What does Jesus actually say about himself? Who does he claim to be? Well, John records several I am statements by Jesus, where Jesus makes declarations about himself. Um, Jesus also talks frequently in John's gospel, or as recorded in John's gospel, um, about his uh, relationship with the Father and how they are one. And so let's look at uh, the I am statements of Jesus this morning, just to remind ourselves Um, of who Jesus is and what he says about himself. So the first I am statement of Jesus is actually not one of the ones that you might most quickly think about. So the list that people often uh, offer would be in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, where he says, I am the light of the world. Uh, In chapter 10, where he says, I am the door of the sheep. Also, the chapter where he talks about being the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, uh, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, maybe the one we quote the most often here, uh, Jesus being the way and the truth and the life. And then in John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about being the true vine. Now, those are the sort of traditional list of I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. Um, But I want to highlight a couple of other places in John's Gospel where Jesus comes right out and just says, I am. So in John chapter 6, Jesus is walking on the water. Um, The disciples are terrified when they see a person walking in a place where a person should not be able to walk. And Jesus reassures them um, just with the statement, I am. It's translated, um, hey, it's just me, like, right? It's, hey, 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 it's me. But the word is, I am. It's I am who is walking on the water. Do not be afraid. Um, he gets into the boat. Immediately the boat is on the shore. The whole thing is miraculous. The disciples are stunned. They might be stunned uh, for multiple reasons, one of which Jesus uses what for them would have been recognized as ineffable, unspeakable. And that would be the uh, the words with which God identified himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, which is why 
when Jesus lays claim to uh, the name I am, the Pharisees, uh, the religious Jews of the day, get so riled up uh, because it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to uh, equate oneself to God, uh, the God who is, who has identified himself as I am. So Exodus chapter 3 would be a chapter of Scripture that you want to read in conversation with the I am passages, the I am statements, the I am claims of Jesus in John's gospel. Um, a couple of other places where Jesus says I am, there is a, an exchange with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, um, and and Jesus is talking with them about um, about the Father. They're not really understanding that. Uh, he's talking about dying for sins, and he says, uh, unless you believe that I am he, uh, you're going to die in your sins. And so they say, well, who are you? And Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that I am from the beginning. And he talks about being the judge. He talks about being the one who is sent to declare uh, the reality of God and God's redemption to the world. Uh, scripture says, you know, they didn't understand what he was talking with them about. And so Jesus says to them plainly, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, obviously a passion prediction there pointing toward his crucifixion, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. All right. I, I am that I am. Again, that Exodus 3 reference. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. But as you fast forward in this same chapter of John's Gospel, again, I'm in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, not everyone believes. And so later in the same chapter, Jesus is this ongoing conversation, still the same conversation, but this time turned and engaging directly with the Pharisees. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews say, you're not even 50 years old. I mean, how have you seen Abraham? And Jesus then says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus um, is declaring himself to be God. And that is a blasphemy for those who do not believe him. And in John chapter 18, we see this uh, played out again at the arrest of Jesus. Um, and we see the very power of, uh, of Jesus's identity as the one who is the great I am. So Judas um, is leading this band of soldiers and some officers and some of the chief priests and some of the Pharisees. Let's just remember that's the group of people who are there who come um, as a part of the arresting party, lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing that all of this would happen, I'm in, I'm in uh, John chapter 18 now. Jesus, knowing that all of these things would happen, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus simply said to them, I am he. I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I already told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus' claim to be I am is, is incredibly significant. And so let's just spend some time today um, pondering that. How do you respond? How do you react? Do you take offense when you hear the claim of Jesus that he is the great I am. 
Um, And what does it mean for us who believe that Jesus is one with the Father and makes a way for us to be so as well? All right, uh, next. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Seen sunny days that I thought would never end. Joining me now, Pastor Daryl Crouch, pastor of the Green Hill Church, also blogs at crosstide.org. Daryl, welcome back. Great to be with you, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So there are um, lots of conversations ongoing, at least on social media. I hope they're I hope they're going on in other places as well, between um, pastors who are African American and pastors who are white about all kinds of things going on in the church and the culture today. Um, it's an ongoing conversation, and there is a letter from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, written in. Uh, I mean, many years ago now, but written um, from the context of a jailhouse, and it did change a nation, and yet I think it still has um, words of clarity to speak to us today. Uh, You have a post about this at crosstide.org. Will you just walk us around in this jailhouse letter that changed a nation? Sure, I appreciate that, and and it is an ongoing conversation because we're uh, people who are a work in progress, and so... We're grateful for the work that so many have done um, and that we we stand on their shoulders, Martin Luther King Jr. um, uh, being among the the greatest of them. But um, we still have work to do. And so these conversations have to continue in a in a context of humility and a context of friendship. And also, I would say that uh, while uh, just as we get started, I think there's a national conversation that's really important. But sometimes national media and national reporting uh, doesn't always reflect accurately uh, what's happening locally with your neighbor next door. And so I think sometimes uh, many of us react or make assumptions based on what we think or what's being reported to us in a national scale. And uh, then we fail to take a step next door and get to know our neighbors. And so we've just seen here in our community that the local work is really the best work, and it's the place that we have the most, the most influence. But uh, Dr. King wrote this letter that we all have uh, come to, to at least know about. Maybe we've not read the whole letter. I hope you'll take the chance to do that. You can find that easily on, on the internet. But uh, he was in a Birmingham jail in 1963 and really was uh, broken over the um, apathy of his uh, white pastor friends, and uh, so he he wrote this letter, uh, and and I, I just outlined uh, eight uh, really core principles or takeaways that he uh, shared uh, from everything from uh, just seeing how he engaged in this uh, very personal uh, initiative and issue in his own life, but he did so from a posture of humility of uh, loving his neighbor and loving the very ones he was trying to move. And I I think this conversation uh, has to be rooted in love. Even uh, today, we, you know, we have the privilege of knowing and talking and learning from folks like John Perkins, who was among, you know, the civil rights movement at the time. And, and uh, he continues to say, after all these years, it's love is where the action's at. Love is where the movement is take takes place. And so we see that in, in Dr. King's letter, that he was humble, he loved those that he was writing to, yet he was broken over uh, the apathy and um, that, that they tended to um, um, 
to communicate. And so um, he was he was trying to move them, but he did that from a posture of love and humility. We're going to um, continue this uh, litany of encouragement uh, is the way I'm going to describe it. You can actually find the entire blog at crosstide.org. Start and stay humble is the first of these eight points. Um, the post is called A Jailhouse Letter That Changed a Nation. Daryl Crouch and I will be right back. When Talking now with Pastor Daryl Crouch, we're talking about our witness as Christians in the context of a culture um, deeply divided over many things, not least of which here in the United States of America is um, the ongoing challenge that we have related to race. And so we are revisiting Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham Birmingham jail, uh, the piece that is posted at crosstide.org, which I highly commend to you is a jailhouse letter that changed a nation. So, Daryl, um, after we start and stay humble, um, we could spend a lot of time on your second point, which is assume the problem of injustice is your problem. This is, uh, this is I think, maybe one of the most critical points on the list. It really, it really is. And uh, I, I say in there that we don't have the luxury of waiting until injustice is on our doorstep, but that's typically what we, what we do. We wait until it, it affects us personally in our family and our children uh, or our parents or a good friend of ours. So uh, we wait until it's a critical moment. But, uh, you know, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't wait and assume that the, the, the marginalized were someone else's problem. His ministry was characterized by moving the least of these into the middle, into the center of his attention. And so uh, I think for us to take initiative and assume that the problem is our problem. It's not someone else's problem. And we don't need permission either to uh, step into that space. We, we don't need to um, wait for others to, uh, to give us a green light. There's, there's uh, so much work to be done locally, so much work to be done in the areas that we do have influence already that we, we can enter into that. And we should and we must. We are our brother's keeper. And so we have a responsibility when we see those that are hurting. And and we tend to do this, Carmen, in some other areas. And, you know, evangelicals have a history of of uh, standing up and speaking up for the unborn, for example. And we we kind of we, we get that in that in that context that uh, we, we're going to step into that space because we have a responsibility to people that perhaps we'll never know or meet. But uh, when it comes to the issue of uh, racial reconciliation and um, the issues that are, as you mentioned, dividing us now in that context, we tend to uh, to assume that we need to to wait it out and that it's somebody else's problem. But uh, that was Dr. King's frustration. If if uh, uh, those in a majority uh, culture, white culture, had stepped into this space, um, it would have literally uh, changed the landscape during the 1960s and, um, and, and going forward. You know, I think there are, um, I know people, so I'm, I don't know that they're listening right now, but I personally know people who would respond to all of this and say, we, we, you know, isn't it time for us to be over this? Like, um, you know, we've made so much, I'm going to use the word progress here. I'm not sure that's the right word, but I think that's the word they would use. Um, uh, we've made so much progress since 1963 when this letter was written. Um, 
you know, you 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 see African American faces uh, all over uh, the media. Very high profile influencers, very high profile pastors, um, very high profile uh, politicians, uh, and they will point to those as evidence that things are very different now than they were in 1963. But there's a there's a grief and an angst that is present in Black America that we cannot, we must not ignore. And it's not, it, it's not fair to say everybody should just get over it. Absolutely. And there's a couple of things I would just speak into that. I, I would say that sin is a real problem mm-hmm. and it's still a problem. It's been a problem for a long time, right? Since the very beginning. So this is, uh, this is sinfulness. Racism is sinfulness and sinfulness is, um, is requires constant vigilance and uh, we we must acknowledge it as what it is. It's not simply a social ill. It's not simply a, you know, a, um, a, a, an issue with one particular group of people. This is a sin problem, and so I think for the people of God to recognize that and um, step into that and understand this is a gospel issue and a, and a gospel proclamation issue. So that's number one. The second thing I would say to folks who who would uh, think, hey, this can't we just move on? I would just build some friendship with some some people of color. Uh, get to know some people. And the, every person of color are not the same. So uh, all black people are not monolithic. All white people are not monolithic. All Asian folks are not monolithic. So get to know some people of color and uh, spend some time with them. Spend enough time that they'll actually begin to open their heart to you, have a number of cups of coffee and uh, do whatever it takes to build the friendship. And then, and just listen, listen to their story, listen to their experiences. Um, I have uh, friends that um, have a wonderful perspective. Uh, They're black, black blood brothers and sisters, and they have a wonderful gospel Christ-centered perspective, but they understand there's still work to be done. And as they open their heart to me and in friendship, uh, I have a greater understanding of of what the issues are. And, um, you know, not not everyone is uh, just uh, trying to beat up on each other. That's really not what's happening. We uh, uh, there's there's genuine people who uh, understand that this is a problem continues to be a problem in America, continues to be a problem among evangelicals, frankly, continues to be a problem among people who carry a Bible and and confess Jesus as Lord. And so I think we we have to continue to step into this space through personal friendships, uh, also recognizing where systemic uh, issues are happening in our local communities that are stiff arming people of color and and uh, step into that and speak into that and be advocates for folks. And so um, we have made progress. I mean, there has been legislation, there has been movement in the right direction, but to assume that we're past it is the same to assume that we're just past all other sins. And that's just not the case. Yeah. I mean, we're, this is not something that we are going to uh, get over. It's not something that we can gloss over. It is only something that Christ can cover, and we have to uncover the sin and allow Him to just radiate um, the really purifying light of His love into into our hearts and into our relationships. The um, the invitation, the encouragement to actually uh, make a friend, right? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, get to know some people, uh, get to know a person who is substantially different in skin color and life experience than myself, a person whose social location is different than my own, and then to just really listen. And so let me, um, if you're listening right now and you're wondering, what would I say in such a series of coffee conversations? Um, maybe you just start with, you know, there's some ways that in which we're obviously different. Maybe you could just tell me your story. Where did you grow up? What was life like there then? Um, what's the scariest thing that happened to you when you were a kid? What did you dream about? Who were your heroes? Did your family go on vacation? If so, where? What did you do? Um, did you go to church? If so, where? What was that like? Um, who were your friends then? Where are they today? Um, those, the answers to those questions will reveal a lot. Um, and you think that uh, growing up and going to the beach and, uh, and taking family vacations and going to Disney World and traveling um, and seeing things and feeling safe and respecting the police, um, you think that that's how everybody grew up. And it's not. It's not. It's not the shared life experience of a lot of people. And there are a lot of people today whose childhood friends are no longer alive. And so they need new friends. And you could be one of those friends if you're really willing to be a friend. And that that means that we humble ourselves and listen to others um, and seek to understand them before we uh, seek to maybe in any way walk with them or speak into their lives. Fair? Yeah. Yeah. People are people. They're not projects. And so, um, you know, be a friend and uh, do all those things you just said and expect to expect that to take time. If I meet a mm-hmm. brand new person and they ask everything about me, I'm going to be slow. No, no matter what color they are or where they're from, I'm going to be slow to trust them. And so trust is built over time and there are barriers to trust. And so for us to enter into this space, uh, requires uh, a, a sense of a, this is a marathon. This is, I'm a learner, I'm a student. And, and it also means that as um, as a white man, I am an advocate for people who are marginalized. Uh, I'm not particularly marginalized. I don't have that experience, but I do have a responsibility to advocate for in private conversations and in public settings and whatever influence that God gives to me to advocate for the marginalized and those that I may not understand completely. And so not only are we befriending people uh, who uh, have different life experiences than us and in a genuine way trying to walk with them, but we're also advocating for them with uh, in, in our uh, group of friends and our areas of influence. And so that's what the, the pastors in Birmingham were simply not willing to do. And uh, they were willing to 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 be a friend of Martin Luther King Jr., but uh, they weren't willing to advocate for him in their in their context. And so, I think all of us have to decide what how how important the gospel is. Is Jesus Lord? Has He really um, removed the dividing wall between us? And if so, what are the implications in the way that I live my life and carry myself and leverage the influence God's given to me? Amen. Um, Daryl, thank you so very much. You guys can find uh, the piece that we were discussing today at crosstide.org. We'll be right back. Evangelical Christians disproportionately believed in conspiracy theories uh, in 2020. 
One of the most dangerous of those is called QAnon. The church must respond. Um, We have people listening to this program right now who are QAnon believers even yet today. They send me emails as such. Um, How do we respond to that? How do we address that? How do we treat those um, who are waking up today to the reality that they believed lies and conspiracies last year? Um, And how do we treat one another in the midst of, of all of this? Andrew McDonald works at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Uh, He has co-authored a number of pieces with Ed Stetzer on the topic, and he joins me next. Sometimes a healthy pursuit can have unhealthy manifestations, like trying to belong and fit in. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When your teen seeks personal validation from peers, this isn't inherently bad. It may look like rebellion to you. It may lead to inappropriate behaviors and some strange choices in clothing and music at times. But in reality, your teen may just be a little off track. So how do you steer a kid that's headed in the wrong direction? Well, let your child's choices teach him the truth. If he looks like a dork, he sounds like an idiot, he acts like a jerk, eventually he can't continue in that direction without facing deeper trouble. Let him face those consequences without rescuing him. Failure is an irreplaceable education for living in the real world. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. McDonald is the associate director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Institute, and he has joined us on a prior occasion. Welcome back, Andrew. It's great to have you today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we want to talk to two different groups of people who are listening right now. We want to talk with people who believe um, in conspiracy theories, and we want to talk with those who do not um, and we want to talk with them in the presence of one another. Um, I want to, uh, I want to have you identify who believes among evangelical Christians, among church-going people. Um, you know what percentage of people believe in conspiracy theories? What conspiracy theories are they believing in? And then specifically, tell us about QAnon. And then we were going to talk about how the church must respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 a weird thing because it's it's come up in the last few years here. But you're right. There are um, a, a growing amount of evangelical Christians that are subscribing to what we would call conspiracy theories, and more specifically, the one that's popping up right now is QAnon. There was a recent study that came out in LifeWay uh, research that said that uh, 49% of pastors frequently hear members of their congregations repeating conspiracy theories. Um, that's with 13% strongly agreeing that they hear that, meaning that they hear it very, very frequently. Um, and so this isn't something that's on the peripheral or fringe as much as it's something that's starting to gain more and more momentum. And so by conspiracy theories, it's uh, ambiguous. I mean, right, you, we can talk about conspiracy theories like uh, we, we talk about uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I remember my, my father joking me with me about that when we were growing up. But when we talk about conspiracy theories today, we mean something a lot more um, uh, sinister in some ways, a lot more uh, behind the scenes, these ideas, these beliefs that what's going on on the surface is not really true, that there are forces and cabals and networks and organizations and leaders that are teaming up to 
uh, subvert and uh, ultimately entrap us, especially Christians. Uh, we can get a sense of embattlement from these conspiracy theories. Uh, and QAnon is oftentimes one of the the the, the prime uh, primary or premier uh, examples of this. And so QAnon is really a constellation of multiple conspiracy theories, uh, a lot of uh, centered around the idea that there is this secret force within uh, beforehand within the Trump government led by President Trump himself um, that were working to uncover what was another shadow organization that was working to uh, oftentimes it's roped in with the Democrats sometimes it's roped into with other global forces sometimes underlying with a lot of uh, racist ideology uh, around um, uh, the Jewish community or, or other communities, but oftentimes it's centered also around sex trafficking. They can loop that in as well. But it's this idea that there's this force of good and this force of evil that are secretly kind of contending, and that's going on underneath the surface. And if you just kind of piece together these various little strands, you'll be able to key out what is actually going on. And so they tend to kind of find little points of light and piece them together and say, okay, this is what's really going on if you just kind of see past what you what you see on the surface. Okay, and advocates of, of conspiracy theories, um, uh, and, and the people who I personally know who advocate some of these things um, generally do not advocate all of them. They advocate mm. some part or piece or and and that's generally then where I pause and say, okay, let's let's walk that out to its logical conclusion. In order to for me to believe what you are telling me, I must also believe and then I I lay out for them the things that are required to believe that I must believe in order to believe what they are saying to me. And so I'm trying to describe the foundation of of the belief that they are espousing. And often what I experience, Andrew, is they don't believe those underlying things. And so when yeah. I point that, but, but I guess what I'm asking is, is that helpful? Is it useful? Or am I just being what some people would describe as a logic bully? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's true. And I think sometimes you have to be very discerning about the kind of person you're talking to. Um, I think that it's wrong to group all people together and say, OK, just because they've kind of started to flirt with some things around these conspiracy theories or maybe uh, voice some concern about something that has a shade of conspiracy theory to it to all of a sudden say, OK, they're a QAnon person and I need to treat uh, combat them. I think that we need to be, especially as church leaders and pastors, very discerning about the different kinds of people. And I w in the article that Dr. Ed Stetzer and I wrote together on Christianity Today, um, we distinguished between those who were simply attracted to QAnon uh, and conspiracy theories and those who were advocates of it, those who were disseminating it and pushing it. And uh, we have to be very careful in seeing those two groups of people as very different people. So in the former, those who are just attracted, we have to understand that sometimes people are pulled to these conspiracy theories because there is a lot of confusion in the world today. Um, and they don't understand. They don't know how to piece things together. And um, I, I think especially with COVID, where there's been a lot of um, ambiguity in terms of, OK, what do I do and, and how do I respond and who do I listen to? A lot of the times in that kind of vacuum of misinformation and uh, ambiguity, the church needs to be patient and helpful. And you're right, pointing out where the logical conclusions of these don't make sense, that you can say, hey, if 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 what you're saying is true, then the X, Y, and Z all have to happen at the same time, and that's not 
even possible. Um, like that, that if there's this huge debate cabal, then President Trump would have to be in on it too. And that doesn't even make sense in terms of the internal logic. Helping people understand that what they're believing is not rational, and then also helping them to understand the underlying uh, impulses of fear and um, uh, loneliness, lack of purpose, sometimes that can come up, especially in, in our current season of COVID. That's really crucial. Um, the those who are advocates, those who are really pushing it, I think that when you start to uh, pull out some of the logical inconsistencies, they're just going to double down, and it's going to become, well, I just don't believe that, or or sometimes you can even get more of a, a, a angry uh, pushback to that. So I think sometimes you have to eventually just say, okay, we're not going to in engage in this anymore because you're not behaving in a way that's conducive to discussion. The relationship, the person is precious. Um, there's a set of ideas about which we are talking. And so as you're listening today um, to Andrew McDonald and I discuss this, um, you are very likely um, aligning with one side of this conversation or the other. And that's not me on one side and Andrew on another. That is the two of us recognizing that there are people with a wide variety of understandings uh, in terms of what is real today. Um, and so we are trying to identify reality as that which aligns with what is true, right? Truth aligns with what is real. And so what is real versus um, what is manifestly not, not true, um, false. And we want to be people of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we need God's help in order to do that. So we're going to continue this conversation with Andrew McDonald about QAnon, about conspiracies and how the church must respond. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Andrew McDonald from the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Is it the Billy Graham Center? It's the Billy Graham Institute. What's the difference? It's the, is the center where I go to meetings and the institute is where you do all the thinking? No, it's the the, the alphabet salad of uh, <laughs> the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Research Institute, so the WCBGCERI. <laughs> so we, we don't make things simple for people. There you go. We make it complicated, so you have to pay attention. There you go. Okay, so um, uh, Andrew, let's um, let's talk about how the church can and must respond. Let's talk to those 49% of pastors who acknowledge that they are regularly, on a regular basis— hearing um, congregants talk about things that are um, understood to be conspiracy theories, and that when we turn to confront people who just want to be confirmed, they often reject us. Like, that's an issue. Um, but we also have a responsibility as Christians to be people who point out for one another, like, right, iron sharpens iron, this accountability process, church discipline, all of those things come to mind. I want fellow believers to be people of truth in all areas of life. So, can you help me walk around in this? Yeah, and you said the you said the magic word, the magic two words there with church discipline. And I'm often reminded of of John Calvin when he introduces the discussion of church discipline. Says that in their hatred of discipline, people recoil from its very name. Uh, even just saying the words church discipline kind of gets people's backs up. But I think that's the area that we're getting into with Q. Uh, and with uh, conspiracy theories as a whole. I, I think that you're right. The church needs to be 
a a place that contends for the truth and contends for the truth in their people's lives. I, I think that the defining pastoral challenge of our generation of church leaders will be contending for people's attention, uh, contending for truth in how we consume media. And pastors need to take a firm stance on that when they start to see people disseminating lies and conspiracy theories, oftentimes under the guise of, oh, I'm just questioning. But when you peel it back, they're not really just questioning. They're using that to kind of smuggle in some things that um, are not true and are divisive. And so I think church leaders need to take a much more active stance of when you're seeing people spread things on social media, um, to not see it as harmless, but to start to do what Scripture tells us to do. So we see Paul says this at multiple points, but in uh, Titus 3.10, he tells people, or he tells church leaders to warn uh, those who are being divisive, uh, to warn them again uh, if they continue so, and then after they do so, to after they continue to push on, to just uh, to expel them from the believing community. I think that we're at that point that if you're challenging people and saying, are you going to be able to lay this aside for the sake of the church? And they say no. Then we've reached a point of, okay, then you're, you are ultimately choosing this over unity in the church. And that's a problem. And so church leaders need to be able to push back on that much stronger than they have in the past. Okay, we have a, um, a listener who says, uh, who's making this observation, well, how can we know what's true when no one in the media nor the government tells us the truth? Um, how, I mean, how do we know? How do we know who to trust might be one way to ask this question. Uh, and then they make the observation that, oh, you know, only what God says is true, but the Bible doesn't exactly address the specific issues that we're dealing with today in a way that's easy to understand. Yeah, and, and it's ultimately, that's, that's, it's a good point, and, and I want to be able to, to respond in empathy ultimately to the idea that there is a lot of ambiguity and there is a lot of bias. Um, in not only the media, but in, in our own lives, in the way that we perceive them, uh, perceive the news. Um, but I think that it's a wrong assumption to say that there is no truth in the media, that there isn't good reporting. And, and just because something that is negative towards us or uh, towards your political views or towards your belief, towards the church, doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong and that it's not factually right. And so I think part of it is listening with critical ears, not just turning things off and saying, okay, I'm not going to listen to MSNBC or CNN or even, or Fox or, or another news source, but listening with critical ears of, okay, how can I take what is good, uh, check it across multiple places and leave what, leave behind what's bad. And ultimately that comes from listening widely and also listening together as the believing community, listening with your pastor, at, leaning into church leadership and asking them for help. How do I know what's true? How do I know what's not true? Help me understand. Go to your pastor, go to your church, instead of going to uh, cable news, instead of going to Facebook and so and Twitter, um, going to the people who you know and you can trust and are in your community that can help you steward the news. So I'm going to um, recommend a few news sources um, that I turn to and look to. And again, as Andrew has said, I don't do any of these exclusively, right? I'm, I am a, a consumer of news from across probably a, a wider spectrum than um, anybody would want to spend their time doing. However, um, Axios.com, if you're looking for headline news and you want to um, 
and you want to find a news source that is at least attempting to be uh, not only written by real people, not by AI, not by bots, um, but also designed to deliver the news in such a way that is not intended to uh, be it's intended to be insightful, not creating incitement. Those two are different. Um, I also go to World, which you can find at world.wng.org. That's that's World Magazine at World News Group. Um, I go to Breakpoint, uh, relying on our friends at the Colson Center to be good, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, aggregators as well. Um, and And so, you know, I just want people to know that it's not as if you – have to be the eyewitness to everything. That's not how that works. We are actually, as Christians, people who believe on the eyewitness believe in the eyewitness testimony of those who um, faced conspiracy theories in their own days. Right? I mean, the resurrection of Jesus was uh, <laughs> had lots of conspiracy theories surrounding it, and and those who sought to uh, weave stories together that were not true in order to um, keep people from believing that which was true, which is that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. So it, it is a challenge. It's a challenging time, but it's not unique in Christian history. Yeah. And I, and I would also add that one of the things that you can do if you're, if you're concerned, if you're uh, about what is true and what's not true is you don't have to take a stand. Like you, you don't have to uh, all of a sudden become a proponent of, okay, this is now an alternate theory. This is what's going on behind the scenes. You can ultimately um, say, I'm I'm confused and I'm unsure. And so I'm going to kind of sit back and get more information over time. I think it's one of the lies of the media cycle that goes so fast that you have to comment on everything as it happens. Um, you can take time, reflect on what's going on in the news and wait for more information. You do not have, there is no obligation to jump in and give an opinion right away. Yeah. Um, And one listener um, acknowledging that, hey, uh, we know from Russia that there are some actual conspiracies. And I would simply respond by saying the reason that you know that is because there are reliable media outlets reporting on it. And so, you know, we can't with one uh, with one hand say, you know, there's conspiracy theories because we we know about them. Well, we know about them because the media is accurately reporting on them. So it's 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 challenging times. Andrew McDonald, thank you for helping us in the midst of these challenging days. Blessings upon you and your work at the Billy Graham Center there at Wheaton College. Um, Want to in, encourage folks to check out the research related to this at LifewayResearch.com. Andrew and Ed's article at ChristianityToday.com. Really good resources there. Um, If you need more uh, resources on this topic and subject matter, just email me, and I'm happy to send you a whole list. Uh, You can email me at Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. All right. um, What a fun first hour. Thank you so much um, for your participation in this hour. Let's stick around and uh, enjoy the next hour together as well. John Brandon joins us. He's a Forbes columnist, and he's also the new digital media director here at Northwestern Media. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.